My goal this morning is to get us all into the Christmas spirit. Are you in the Christmas spirit? Yeah, yeah this guy is. Wait till you do your Christmas shopping, though. I went Christmas shopping yesterday. Nothing gets you out of the Christmas spirit like going Christmas shopping, right? After I took a couple blows to the head, going for that last toy on the shelf, I was like, why did Jesus come? Right, we, just, we sang about this. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came because the world is dark. Jesus came because thorns and thistles infest the ground. He came because troubles surround us and, and lie in front of us everywhere we go. Because our life is full of so much grief. This is why Jesus has come. Because life is full of grief. And so this morning we're going to get a little bit of light from our passage on the subject of why the world is so dark. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Look, at, look on your phones at Psalm 139. Verses 1 to 6. The sweet introduction to Psalm 139 where there we learn about God's close attention to us, His, His intimacy with us, His care for us. You've searched me and know me. You're, you're with me every step of the way. Verses 7 to 12 develops this and says that not only does God love us in an extraordinary and very personal way, but he is with us wherever we go. Whether we flee from him, whether we dwell in the farthest reaches of the known universe, whether darkness comes and seems to be hiding us from him, God is with us in all of those places. And verses 13 to 18 are all about how God has been active in ourselves, our bodies. He formed us, our inward parts, and also in our lives. He formed our days, every single one of the days that he formed for us and planned for us before we were born. And so verses 1 to 18 is this beautiful array of God's love and care and attention on every single one of us. And then we come to verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, God. What? <laughs> when I was... Setting up this series for Christmas, I was breaking up the passages like, which, what, what am I going to preach on which Sunday? And then I came to this one for Christmas, the final sermon, the Christmas sermon. I'm like, well, this could be an interesting, this could be an interesting sermon. This is a very surprising ending to this psalm. Verses 1 to 18 is this beautiful psalm. Cut, print, done, ship it, bless the people of God for the next 3,000 years. Good. But then he throws in verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. This is a very startling shift. A very startling shift. What is he saying? He's saying basically God, God killed bad people. In the psalmist's view, this is the primary problem with life. Like this is why the world is so full of grief. Because of bad people. Please kill them. The world is so full of grief because of the bad people. Because of people, not just all people, of course, but the bad people. We should probably be more specific with that, though, right? Because there's some bad people you like. I mean, the bad people that disagree with me. There we go. God, kill those people, please. Right? Think of all the people ruining Christmas. Right? You get frustrated with this? Right? As soon as, right, when does it start? Thanksgiving, Halloween, all of a sudden it's Christmas, it's noise, it's glitz, it's, right, it's, it's politicians you're frustrated with. 
Invisible heads of multinational corporations ruining Christmas. You got people in the workplace, right, who are kind of making fun of Christmas, mocking you for your faith. You got neighbors, right, they put up this monstrous display and they're, they're out there carousing and just, they got, they got the Star Wars nativity or something like that. Like, come on, that's disrespectful. You got people in your family, right, you're not looking forward to going to some of the different family events because there's that person there who's obnoxious about the faith side of Christmas, right? They get, a, they get a, couple, a couple drinks in and all of a sudden their faith becomes a very prominent feature in the conversation. The problems in our life, our lives are full of grief because of other people. That's the psalmist's perspective here. You can almost hear the logic Right, so verses 1 to 18 is all about how God loves me, about how God is caring for me. And then, what's the first thing that occurs to the psalmist? Probably the first thing that would occur to us, too. Well, okay, so if you love me so much, why don't you take care of the things that are causing me the most trouble in my life? Why don't you deal with the things that are giving me all this grief? Well, that's, we have to admit that's a very human response, right? How many times have you heard a sermon or sung a song about how overwhelming God's love is and then you're like, God, really? This thing in my life? This person? This problem? And you love me so much? I don't see it. This is a very human response to verses 1 to 18. After all, verse 20, he goes on to kind of begin an explanation because they, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Well, that doesn't sound good. He's saying, God, allow me to explain why I want all the bad people dead. You can kind of see he's kind of like, did I say that out loud? He's kind of backpedaling a little bit. Verses 21 to 22 do this a little bit more. He's kind of saying, now let me justify myself. Do I not hate those who hate you, God? It's it's not me. I hate those who hate you, God. He's trying to kind of identify himself with God, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Your enemies, God, my enemies. They hate you, I hate them. Sounds like he's being a a little defensive. He's trying to identify himself with God. He's trying to say, hey, this isn't selfish hatred. This is holy hatred. Right? Do you have some holy hatred in your life? God says, it's not, I don't, I, they're trying to take prayer out of your schools. That's why I hate them. They're trying to take the Ten Commandments down from public spaces. I don't hate them for my sake. I hate them for your sake. They're messing with the genders and our pronouns. God, that's your pronouns they're messing with, not mine. That's why I hate them. They're, they're, they're responding inappropriately to the season in my family or at work. It's, it's you that I'm most concerned about, God, not me. This isn't selfish hatred. Sounds like it. What do we do with verses 19 to 22? I don't like these verses, but here they are. What do we do with them? Two things positively. Let's say, make, make sure you say two things positive first, right? Let's say two things positive first. First of all, right, this is very natural. This is a very natural way to feel about the people in your world who you feel are doing bad things. It's very natural. Let's not pretend like this person's a monster. (gasps) 
oh, you hate people and want them dead? Like, this is a very human response to the world. And even to religious experiences. Like, how many people have religious experiences? How many people even have experiences of the love of God in Christ? And then almost their first response is to turn to some kind of jihad. Right? Oh, God loves me so much. Let's get rid of all rock music. God, God, thank you so much for your love and forgiveness and for, for washing me of all my shame. And now let's boycott all R-rated movies. These are all things from my childhood I'm bringing up. Uh, let's boycott all these things. Let's, right, they just, as soon as they get a sense of God's love, they just turn right to holy war. Holy war is a very natural but a very sinful response to, to God's love in a world of people who hate, hate God. So the first thing we've got to say is that this is kind of natural, and we've all felt this. Second thing we should say is, maybe a little more inflammatory, this, it's not really wrong. Like, so what do God's enemies deserve? What do people who, who hate God, who mock God, what do they deserve? Right, the, the wages of sin is... Say it, you bad people, you. You're so bad. The wages of sin is death. So, I mean, it's not really polite, and it's not really a great Christmas sermon, but uh, it's not wrong. I mean, should we feel, should we feel anger about uh, sin that we see in the world? about people who are blaspheming God, right? The only hope of salvation that the lost people in this place have, and here are these people who are mocking him, making light of him, downgrading in the popular conception how important he is and how essential it is to know him to be saved. Shouldn't we be upset by that? Shouldn't we be upset by the injustices we see? We see the poor and the innocent being, being downtrodden. Shouldn't, shouldn't the, the men of blood, like, shouldn't we, we be angry at them for these things? That, that's a just response, right? So, so this is real talk, right? 19 to 22. This is why we love the Psalms. They kind of peel back the band-aid a little bit on what's going on under the surface for all of us holy people. But... You'll notice here, at the end of verse 22, there's two more verses. Right, so verse, verses 19 to 22 is not the end of this passage. It's not the goal. It's not the primary thing that the psalmist wants us to land on. There's another very stark shift to conclude our psalm. So verses 1 to 18 is all about the love of God. Verses 19 to 22 is all about how, like, kill the wicked and I hate them and I'm full of anger. And then look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, we don't know what exactly happens. I'm going to make three speculations based on our text. But something dramatic happens inside of the psalmist after hearing verses 19 to 22 come out of his mouth. Something shifts. He becomes very uneasy. And something occurs to him that makes him go from hating these people to examine me, God. Possibly what occurs to him is 
that the way that God feels about me, verses 1 to 18, is probably how he feels about them too because he formed and made them and knitted them together in their mother's womb just like he did for me. Maybe I need to reconsider my 19 to 22 feelings. Maybe this occurs to him. The way that uh, all this hate, these hatred and murderous thoughts make him sound more like the men of blood that he wants killed than it does the God of verses 1 to 18 who's with him everywhere and walking with him and loving him in, in that way. He, he hears himself and he says, I sound like a person of blood. Somebody who wants to shed blood and do wickedness and not like God. Or the third thing that could be occurring to him Based on back in chapters, or verses 7 to 12, how he flees from God, how he tries to dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, and how darkness covers him. And he would say, well, when I was there in that place where God was my enemy, and I didn't want to have anything to do with him, didn't God come and try to rescue me there? Shouldn't I then be wanting him to do that for these people as well? Maybe even I should try to join God in that and see if I could bring his light to them. Maybe. What's revealed here, I think what occurs to the psalmist and the great revelation here is what is God's heart for his enemies? The psalmist reveals his heart, which is kill them all. What's God's heart for his enemies? What is God's heart for those who mock him What is God's heart for those who have sinned against the clear commands He's given them? What is God's heart for those who do injustice? What is God's heart for those who justly deserve death? What's God's heart for them? God's heart for them is Christmas. That's God's heart for them. God's heart for them is Christmas. God's heart for us is Christmas. He says, oh God, I consider them my enemies. They're they're your enemies. I consider them my enemies. And we read in Romans 5, verse 10, while we were enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God's heart for his enemies is Christmas. Jesus comes. Jesus comes. The light comes. How many times do we try to kill Jesus? before we're successful. And what does he do? He lays down his life. He lays down his life for us. So while 19 to 22 is an example of the way that we are bent towards jihad, we are bent towards killing all infidels, we are bent towards holy war, God does Christmas. Listen, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us, you, the ones you love, the people you respect and the people you hate and the people you despise and the people you're angry at, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of all that sin is death. But the message of Christmas is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And God shows his love for us 
And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to Him by the death of His Son. So that now, everyone who's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all they have to do is confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. And they can be saved. So we come to the end of this psalm, verses 23 and 24. In these short two verses, there are six requests. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be a grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Six requests. It's almost as if the psalmist ends the the psalm in a kind of a panic. He hears himself in verses 19 to 22 and he goes, Oh God, oh my goodness, I need some help here. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. But if you remember... How the psalm begins, verse 1, begins, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. So God already knows everything about the psalmist. What he's praying now is he's saying, God, search me and know my my heart and my thoughts and make that knowledge present it to me. Help me to see the truth about me. Expose to me what I need to see. The psalmist at this point is now realizing that he needs help and he's, he's finally ready to hear the truth about himself. Are you? Do you need help? Do I need help? Am I ready to hear the truth about myself? Or would you put yourself more, would we put ourselves more saying, I don't need help. I know the truth about myself. Is that our condition? I mean, Psalm 139 is bringing us to a place. It's trying to bring us to a place where we all realize, I need help. I'm ready to hear the truth about myself. Hey, let's play Would You Rather. Would you rather... Would you rather always get the best gift... Every gift-giving opportunity for the rest of your life. Every birthday, you get the best gift. Every Christmas, the best gift. If you got like St. Nick's and Elf on the Shelf stuff or something, Hanukkah, whatever it is, you get the best gift for all those things. Anniversaries, the best gift. First day of school, the best gift. Promotion at work, you get the best gift. But you can't feel grateful. You lose the ability to feel grateful. Or, would you rather never get any gifts ever again for the rest of your life, but always feel grateful? Mm. I think about this, (laughs) right? Something in me feels like it's going to explode. I want all that stuff. So, this is a question of What is the source of that sense of lack you have? What is the real source of that sense of frustration that you have? That that sense of grief that you may have? What is the source of it? Is it because you didn't get that stuff? Is it because of what those people do or did? Verse 24. 
begins, and see if. He's saying, God, watch out for this. See if, let me know if you find this. Any grievous way. See if there be any grievous way. What is a grievous way? That's a weird expression. It is the way, the lifestyle, the path, the way of living that leads to what? Grief. See if there be that way, that way that leads to grief in me. Where does he say it is again? In me. So now let's go back to that first question that this passage was asking. Why is my life so full of grief? Is it because of the bad people? Or is it because of what's in me? My life is full of grief because of what's in me. It's not the bad people out there. It's not the politicians. It's not the corporations. It's not my difficult family. It's not my problematic coworkers. It's not my frustrating neighbors. It's something that's in me. The problem is that their way of living is just as at home in me as it is in them. And so he concludes, he says, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me. The, the psalmist recognizes, I am not equipped to deal with what you're going to find in me, God. I am going to need your help. You are going to have to lead me out of my grief-making way of life, and you are going to have to lead me onto the new path. Lord, you're going to have to be my shepherd, or else I'm just going to continue living with a sense of lack and frustration and grief the rest of my life. You are going to have to be my shepherd or I'm just going to want and want and want. So lead me in the everlasting way. What is the everlasting way? I think I first I hear that, that everlasting way and I feel like uh, this is the, your path. What's your path? Right? What's your path? We all have this path that the world is saying. You've got to find your path, the lit path, uh, align your chakras. I don't even know what that is. But we've got we to do these things to, to find your way. What is the everlasting way according to Scripture? It's the Word of God. It's, it's not something we've got to discover. It's something we've got to learn to read. And we've got to meditate on it. We've got to listen to. The everlasting way is God's Word revealed. It is the life that it describes. It is the life that is embodied in Jesus. This is the everlasting way. And it is everlasting in three ways. First of all, it takes us to an everlasting place, right? It's a way that you get on is never going to come to an end. There's not going to be any hard stop at the end. Jesus says, everyone who believes in me, though you die, yet shall you live. And everyone who believes in me, though the, they will never die. This is the everlasting way. It's the everlasting way because it never shifts or changes. It wasn't true for David, but we're more sophisticated today. It's the same for the psalmist here as it is for you and me today. And it's the everlasting way because it is always forking away from our feet. We've got the grievous way in front of us, well lit and luminous, and always the everlasting way we are invited to walk on. And so the psalmist concludes in verse 3, verse 5, it's all about how God is with us. You Search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. He is with us, walking with us. And now at the end we say, God, I want to be with you. 
I want to walk with you. Would you please lead me? So the point of our passage this morning, the point of this text, is this, that the greatest threat, the greatest threat, the thing that God in His verses 1-18 to love is trying to rescue us from, the thing that Jesus in His love came to deliver us from, is not the sinners around us, but the sin within us. That's the greatest threat. Listen, none of us like to hear this, but you and I come to the grief that we enjoy in our lives because of what is inside us. Because verses 19 and 22, the world's ways of addressing problems and addressing threats. Things have come into your life that have threatened you, that you feel are a problem, and the way that you deal with them is the world's ways. Anger, blame, fear, resentment, hatred. Are those things in us? That's our biggest problem. Their ways in our lives directing us to live like them. And so this psalm is calling us to receive Christ's way, to receive the Christmas way, and walk in that. Because the greatest threat is the sin within us. The only solution, the only solution to the problems that we face is that we would, like the psalmist does at the end, turn more of our lives over to the Spirit of Jesus and be led. Jesus invites everybody. How many times? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Paul picks it up in Galatians. He says, let's, let's keep in step with the Spirit of Jesus. This is the only solution that we have. You want to follow Jesus a little more? Keep in step with the Spirit? This is the Christmas way. Here's the Christmas way. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the Christmas way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I deserved one thing. I got something very different. I got a gift. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, what's the Christmas way here? While they're still sinners, love them. Serve them. Pray for them. Try to do good to them. Because Christ loves them. And He wants to love them. And He will love them through us. It can be hard to be a Christian at Christmas. Sometimes. Sometimes it feels like the world is just falling over itself to mock and to marginalize our beloved Lord. And it's easy to get frustrated, it's easy to get mad, it's easy to withdraw. But instead, I want to invite you with the psalmist here to get into the real Christmas spirit. The real Christmas spirit. And so to the mockers in your life and the blasphemers, to those who are greedy and disgust you, to those who are dispirited and angry or deeply afraid this Christmas season, we bring gifts. We bring gifts in Jesus' name and we say, hey, hey, God love me anyway. So Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. The exposure of verses 19 to 22, which unfortunately a lot of us can resonate with, 
a sense of frustration with people in our lives, a sense of frustration and even anger with the world. And yet the real problem is not out there in them, but the real problem for each one of us is here inside of us. It's the grievous way that has found a home in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray simply what the psalmist prays. We ask your help in making this our prayer this week. Lord, lead us in the everlasting way. Would you just take a moment and pray in the quiet of your thoughts, quiet of your hearts? And if you need to unburden yourself of some 19 to 22 grievous thoughts, do that. And then ask the Lord to lead you in the everlasting way. Let's pray again. Father, again, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for Christmas. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to be your people, help us to be his people, to be disciples of our Lord. Lord Jesus, lead us in the everlasting way. Lead us in your way and watch over us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.